Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Listeners, I'm Mark Clovis, and welcome to the fourth podcast of Arguing History, where renowned historians meet to debate some of the key points in our past. 2017 is the 100th anniversary of one of the defining events of the 20th century, the Russian Revolution. Yet referencing the Russian Revolution as a singular event glosses over the two distinct revolutions that took place in March and November of that year, as well as other events which were no less transformative for Russia and indeed the world. But how many revolutions did Russia experience in 1917? To discuss the question of the Russian Revolution, we have with us two of the most distinguished scholars of modern Russian history today. The first is Mark D. Steinberg, who is professor of history at the University of Illinois and the author of The Russian Revolution, 1905 to 1921, Petersburg, Fendiseka, and Voices of the Revolution, 1917. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you. The second is Michael David Fox, who is professor in the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service and Department of History at Georgetown University and the author of Revolution of the Mind, Higher Learning Among the Bolsheviks, 1918 to 1929, and Showcasing the Great Experiment, Cultural Diplomacy and Western Visitors to the Soviet Union, 1921 to 1941. Michael, welcome to the show. Hi, glad to be here. Glad to have you here. Uh, So, Michael, uh, would you care to start us off about what we're, what we speak of when we speak of revolutions here? Well, <clears throat> the question of how many revolutions there were in 1917 reminds me of the time I was walking by a bookstore and my friend saw a title in the window saying the revolutions of 1917. And he's like, Hey, there's a typo in that title of that book. And I'm like, no, there were two revolutions in 1917, February and October. So regime change, the the fall of czarism and the fall of the provisional government in October are sort of very traditional markers of a revolution. And I think without regime change, you either have a failed revolution, a potential revolution, or no revolution at all. Many people probably know that the original meaning of the word revolution goes back to revolve and something in the early modern period coming back around, but it's in the modern period it became associated with radical transformation. But you know, regime change might be a kind of sine qua non of revolution, but you can't have a new order without imagining what a new order is. So you therefore have to have ideology and revolutions are often called modern for that reason. You don't have just a change of the ruler. You don't have a a coup d'etat or, you know, someone pretending to be the czar as often happened in the 17th and 18th centuries. You have to have to imagine a radically new order. So that's another, the element of ideology, I think is crucial. And also um, the collapse of the old order is a major part of revolution because the legal system, the coercive apparatus of the old regime, that leads to a, ushers in a period that's really almost anomalous. Uh, if you look at 1917 in the sort of course of Russian history. And I think another element that people often uh, associate with revolutions is mass popular uprisings in the name of justice or some higher ideal, whether you have to have, you know, hundreds of thousands of people on the streets is another is a is an interesting question it's often happened in most uh modern revolutions of the left you could conceive maybe right-wing revolutions not having that element but you know i think that once we get into beyond regime change though and we look at different dimensions of what was going on in 1917 and how historians have looked at for example how peasants wanted rural revolution, 
how non-Russian nationalities wanted revolu different kinds of national independence along with some new order. You then open up the, the potential to not two regime changes, but multiple revolutions. And that's what I've been thinking a lot about recently. Yeah, can I jump in there? Because um, when you were telling your story about revolutions of 1917, I think that's generally what people assume when they use that phrase, that there were two. Uh, because people are quite preoccupied with the notion that a revolution means overthrowing a government, regime change. Uh, and like you, I agree. One of the things that's really striking about any revolutionary period, it's not just Russia in 1917, but that's what we're talking about, is there are aspects of these events that are, one might say, revolutionary or the spirit and character of revolution without actually necessarily being primarily about overthrowing the government. And so that also pulls us away in terms of that multiplicity of revolutions you were talking about, pulls us away from simply focusing on capturing the state or even just politics in the narrow sense of politics, not in the larger sense of politics of power. And I'd emphasize two things. One, I think it's really important to pay attention to the particularities of what's going on in different places. Um, you mentioned villages factories, uh, city streets, uh, the army, and there's a difference between the army at the front and the army in the rear, uh, in all the places of empire, uh, both urban and rural. Each one of those places is in ferment. Uh, and so revolution is, is going in multiple directions. One of my students who, who I sort of, as we went through some of this stuff, said, I think the revolution is, makes no sense. It's a madhouse. Everybody's going in different directions. And, and I sort of liked that madhouse analogy because sometimes that's what revolutions feel like on the ground, which means just one more point is that, you know, when you think about, you said, Michael, the, the vision of a new order, right? That's, that's a vision that's happening in all of those places. But there's also a lot of disorder that goes with the revolutionary process of overthrowing an old order and creating a new order. So you got multiplicity, you've got multiple spaces, you've got uh, disorder as part of the sort of experience and story out of which, of course, somebody will try to create more order. Yeah, you know, I used to think about it for a long time in terms of, you know, the, when you're talking about the collapse of the Russian empire, this massive space, you know, I thought about it in terms of vertical and horizontal um, disintegration in a way, because you had all this class conflict, different social groups, political versus popular revolution. Um, but then you also, so that's the kind of horizontal element. Then you had, vert, you have, you know, the different parts of the country, the non-Russian borderlands, the regions breaking away, different, and then revolution turning into civil war. So you have all this vertical fragmentation. Now I'm thinking about it more in terms of thematic as you know as well. And this is an interesting question. When we get beyond simply regime change, where do you draw the line? You know, people have in a way cheapened the the, the, the use of the word revolution to mean any kind of radical change. So you have the sexual revolution and so forth. You even had the Reagan revolution when I was uh, you know younger. And I think that you can, without the, I, I think the point is that all these different dimensions of revolution, the rural revolution, the soldiers revolution, trench Bolshevism is all, you know, the term you often hear, um, the non-Russian revolutions, um, they all are not dis completely disassociated from the political revolution, from the struggle for power. Right. Or for the, you know, you have the breakdown of an old order and an attempt to create new ones. But I think in terms of thinking in terms of just February and February itself, you know, led to dual power. So it was a very complicated political revolution, which was in, in some ways quite indicative of the situation in Russia. You know, a split between moderates and radicals, liberals and socialists right at the outset of 1917. And then, you know, what's going on in October now seems so momentous because it did lead to the consolidation of the first socialist state and the Bolshevik regime. But at the time, 
October attempt to seize power by the Bolsheviks just seemed like one among many um, political uh, upheavals that were going on and turns that were going on at the time. So in that sense, it was the retention of power and the consolidation of the new regime, you know, that was the really crucial element in what came later. And so the point is, I want to pick up on one thing Mark said, was that revolutions are, you know, periods of, of extreme ferment. In some ways, because of the, the, the end of a regime that's lasted for centuries, you have, it seems to many people at the time that time is, itself is speeding up, that historical change is sort of compressed into a remarkably rapid period of time. That's what makes, I think, 1917 feel so different from, uh, for, for people who are experiencing it than uh, what became, came before and what came after. Uh, if I could actually uh, ask you to elaborate upon a point, then it, it sounds like from the way you've described it, Michael, it, it, that perhaps then are we making a mistake in describing it as two revolutions, given uh, your uh, how you present the the October Revolution of November 1917 as, in some respects, a settling of events that began as early as February? Well, you know, I personally have moved to the notion that there are that we're better off looking at multiple revolutions and i've come to that this year because of the you know this is the end of the centennial year and we've seen a whole wave of commemorations trying to to sort of publicly mark what night the hundredth anniversary means and i've been participating in many of them and i've sensed a certain reductionism that you know people want to talk about the legacy the meaning today of 1917, and therefore they talked about what 1917 led to, which was the consolidation of uh, communism. So they talk either about global communism or Soviet communism, and that's often in terms of the effects on the world reduced to the Stalin period and the Cold War. These are the state later stage, what I would call later stages of the revolution and the results of the revolution. So in sort of swimming against that tide of fixing the meaning of, you know, of the Russian revolution into its results, I'm pushing back with this notion of multiple revolutions. And I, of course, it depends how you define it. If you define it in terms of regime change, then you do have two. But if you look at radical spheres of transformation that are connected to the attempt to create a new order, then you get um, many uh, elements of many different kinds of revolutions going on. For example, I'll give a couple examples that might stimulate um, Mark to reply here. But I think that February, uh, you know, uh, lived on after October, in the sense that many of February's revolutionaries they wanted a more moderate socialist or liberal order, but they weren't reactionaries. They weren't monarchists. They opposed Bolsh the Bolsh the sole um, the, a one-party state and the seizure of power by the Bolsheviks. But they didn't necessarily. Um, they weren't anti-revolutionary. They were revolutionary in a different way, and so I think that they some of them joined the white movements. I think it's problematic for that reason to call the white just simply say the whites were just counter-revolutionaries in the sense that they didn't want to go back to the pre-February status quo ante or, or czarism. They often were either products of uh, late czarism in its total war incarnation, which was quite different from pre-1914, or they were sort of moderate revolutionaries and moderate political moderates. So to say that February disappeared is, um, I think, problematic. And then these different dimensions to revolution, this is my second example, had their own sort of chronological, temporal uh, trajectories. For example, let's take peasant revolution. It begins earlier than 1905. There are major uprisings in the early, early 20th century. It has a different valence in that peasant revolution was about peasants often going up to the landlord estate, burning it down, incorporating the noble land into the peasant commune. Um, it had its own uh, trajectory afterwards with this sort of Bolshevik uh, attempt to push back against grain requisitioning. 
There was famine in the early 20s. There was collectivization in the early 30s and spontaneous decollectivization during World War II. So if we look at these things as sort of processes punctuated by the breakdown of the old regime, then peasant revolution has a very different kind of trajectory than, say, um, the revolutions among the many of the non-Russian nationalities who had brief periods of independence between 1918, 1920, in certain cases. Or we could also talk about, I think, cultural revolution as something that's a major dimension to revolution that has even, a, you know, it's occurring in a, in a very different way. So, so that's where I'm going with it right now. So, so you see why my student, uh, when I start, when we w work through a class on a lot of this, calls this a madhouse, uh, because multiple chronologies, multiple ideological trends, multiple um, desires, uh, this is really the characteristic of a, of a real revolution. Uh, and, and that's why I agree profoundly with you, Michael, that, that one of the problems of of it's, it's always a problem when you get to an anniversary because it tends to want to uh, fix and mythologize the memory of an event. And because of what came in the later history, I agree with you fully that the obsession with, so what did the revolution produce? Did it produce Stalinism, et cetera, uh, has been a real problem. And it, and it means we often lose the incredible, not just chaos and madness, but the enormous vitality and possibility of what existed in particular between the two dates we tend to focus on as defining revolution, which is, in other words, after the Tsar fell and before the Bolsheviks come to power, although there's plenty of uncertainty after uh, October, after November on the Western calendar, that period is in a way the most interesting part of the revolution for me. Uh, and I've begun more and more to focus on it, especially when I've, I've also been giving talks at these events precisely in order to get away from the obsession with Bolshevik power and what, of it, what it produced. So in that period, after the Tsar falls, before the Bolsheviks come to power, uh, here's where you really see the spirit and complexity and richness of a, of a revolution, just as you described. Depending on where you look, different things are happening at different paces and with different desires. And one might say, just as everything is connected to politics in one way or another, to questions of power, though not always state power, it's also everything one might say is connected to types of cultural revolution in the sense that people's conceptions of what sort of world do we want to live in is shaped by what sort of values, what sort of human relations uh, do they want? What is the status of the human being? Uh, and this is very uh, much the the diversity and richness of, of those months. One other little note I would add, though, is that I, I tend, while I, we clearly agree on the incredible multiplicity of what's going on, and maybe we don't agree, uh, agree fully on the sense of using the plural term, uh, in, in that I actually, the title of my book is Russian Revolution, and the, I, I was happy with that. And I actually started in 1905 and ended in 1921, so even a crazier and longer chronology of different events, because all just as everything's connected to politics, as you say, all of these events shape each other. Um, and so I'm quite comfortable with the notion that this is a long, ongoing revolutionary process that makes it harder to, to grasp onto events, but it makes it easier to recognize the complex uh, interconnectedness of people's drives and experience and actions in, in these years. I was just going to say we should disagree about something since this is called <laughs> um, but, We'll um, find something else. I do. Um, I, I do think it's a question of semantics. So whether it's yeah. whether these multiple revolutions are part of one grand revolution. Evolutionary process. I'm comfortable with that too. But I want to raise a couple of points. One is that you know the pot. You talk about the possibilities and the hopes and so forth. There's an element, a strong element of utopianism. I think in the Russian Revolution, in the French Revolution, and in many re other revolutions. But the, you know, why do revolutionary processes often seem so similar in history? But the outcomes and the nature of those revolutions are often radically different. 
that's the element of you know the sort of the the cultural element, the ideological element, the fact that the politics of it does matter. That socialism was the dominant ideology in 1917. It wasn't in 1905. The, the cadets and the liberals were ascendant, but bef- you know that was one of the legacies of the failure of 1905 in a way and pre-existing exacerbated tensions. But by the time you get again and World War One, but by the time you get to February 1917, um, the liberals are much weaker. And so, you know, it's an interest. I think a, lo- a lot of this thinking in our field about multiple revolutions came out of the old dichotomy between social and political revolution. And you know, there was um, a, a wave of social history that looked at revolution from above as something distinct from the, the political revolution. And I think, in a way, that leads into more recent treatments where people talk about uh, popular revolution, the people's tragedy, meaning the invoking the people's revolution. I don't. I agree with you that I don't. I don't think you can separate it out from what's going on in the political sphere. And I think the, the, the deeper question, the thing that's harder to grab, once you recognize these multiple revolu- dimensions, right, to revolution, then you start putting Humpty Dumpty back together again and saying, you know, how did this popular ferment actually relate to what's going on uh, on the level of the political parties and the outcome of uh, the Russian revolution? I think... Um, there's a really interesting new book by uh, Boris Kalinitsky on the Kerensky cult. We often think of cults in terms of Lenin and Stalin cults that were created later under the Bolsheviks. But, um, you know, this thousand page book practically deals with three months in 1917 when Kerensky, the moderate socialist sort of non-denominational uh, SR uh becomes ascended in the provisional government and tries and, and is a real a concerted attempt by those around him to create a kind of cult, uh, a, a, a hero cult. And it leads to questions about the political culture of 1917, because Kalinitsky draws this back to um, the cult of the czars and forward to Lenin's cult, which first got its very initial beginnings with the attempted assassination in 1918. And so how does the, you know, the cult of heroes that is often as it was present in the French Revolution, it's present in the Russian Revolution, lead into the authoritarian um, new regime? Or how does mass mobilization in you know, the, the grassroots ferment of 1917 is not unconnected from later Soviet mass mobilization? So these are unsettling questions because we often try to think of the good sort of popular revolution versus what the bad Bolsheviks did later on. But I think there are, it doesn't mean that there was an inevitable leading into the other one from one to the other, but it it leads to quest deeper questions about, you know, how these popular attitudes do interconnect with uh, political regimes. Yeah. And so, you know, apropos of that, uh, one of the things that's really interesting is some of the language we use uh, to talk about what those ideologies were. Uh, both from leaders and activists, but also in the sort of popular culture and the political culture, in popular views and around the empire. Uh, and, and three of the biggest words that were being used right after February uh, is obviously socialism, as you've noted, uh, but also democracy and freedom. These were just everybody was using these words. And one of the really interesting things to that helps us understand the, the richness and complexity, as well as possibility, uh, as well as dangers because of enormous fragmentation in those months between February and October, is, is how many meanings you can find in those terms. I mean, to say that uh, the population moved toward favored socialism, or at a certain point, even much of the urban, especially worker population, favored Bolshevism, uh, there's no unanimity on the meaning of of any of those terms. Uh, And so one of the real striking and interesting and troubling things is how multiple the visions of those ideological stances were. Even a simple word like democracy, people couldn't agree on what that meant. Certainly not uh, socialism. And and that presents a challenge. You know, it's one side of the 
excitement and possibility of what's going on in 1917 before October and after February, it's also the challenge the Bolsheviks had to face. If they were going to, they were, became increasingly popular, as you know, uh, took power uh, in the name of the Soviets, not in the name of themselves. In other words, in the name of popular power, as most people know, but sometimes forget, thinking they took power for them uh, for, the, for themselves. But if they were going to not just say, it's sheer chaos and we can't move forward, they had to create unanimity around the meanings of socialism, the meanings of democracy, even the meanings of freedom. Uh, and you know, you can't, the revolution can't go on in this sheer chaos. So they, they faced a real challenge. To me, I prefer to think about the, the excitement of those years of multiplicity, but that's because I'm not responsible for creating a state the way the Bolsheviks were. And there were good reasons not to allow allow Russia to simply descend uh, into chaos. If I may, I, I was yeah. wondering if it might help provide a degree of focus on this question <laughs> of revolutions. If we yeah. talked about what the revolutions were, if I could borrow from the movie, what they were revolting against. Uh, <laughs> so what was it exactly that, what was being rejected or what was being challenged in 1917 that, led to what we could regard as an effort at revolutionary change, not just politically, but socially, culturally, and so forth. So if, if I could just begin that, you know, again, we'll talk about one of those words, and that's the notion of freedom. Uh, it is striking how everybody virtually in those first days after the czar was overthrown said what has just happened. Uh, one uh, leading feminist said we've Russia has turned a new page in its history, and written on it a single word, freedom. Uh, people began to call them the days of freedom. People use this phrase again and again. So one way to get at the answer of what was, what did they revolt against, what was overthrown, what was the old order, it, for a lot of people it could be summed up in, in the sense of, of lack of freedom. Of course, there's a lot of particulars as to what that meant, depending on who and where you were. If you were an an intellectual, there was a lack of freedom to uh, publish as you wish, to speak as you wish. There was a lack of, if you were in, liberally inclined in any way, uh, there was a fundamental lack of what is recognized as classic civil rights, freedom of speech, freedom of uh, expression, to publish, to assemble, freedom of religion. Uh, so those were widespread. But if you get deeper down into the levels of, uh, let's say, a factory, People would argue, and this is where you get the complexity of what did freedom mean. They knew what they were against, and they knew what they had overthrown. Freedom was, uh, in some ways, for some of them, wage labor itself. For many, it was simply the poverty. How can you be free when you're impoverished? Uh, in the army, uh, there was the sense of we're forced to fight in this horrific war. We're dying by the masses. We're suffering enormously. That's not freedom. Uh, and so the sense of... Uh, being forced into this war. And you can go on and on. In the peasants, for peasants, it was often, we don't have freedom because we are forced to work landlord's land. That We do all the work on it, and yet we have to pay for the right uh, to work on land that is owned by somebody else. So the idea that peasants don't possess the land they work was seen as unfreedom. Uh, shackles was, was a metaphors that were often used. So everywhere you look, same thing in the margins of empire. Uh, they felt that their lack of freedom was they weren't free to express their national uh, and religious identities. So the whole series of, I'm looking backward, thinking about why everybody uses freedom is because that's what the old regime struck people as. Now, we can argue about what it really was, how much freedom. There had been reforms after the 1905 revolution. There were all sorts of policies. It wasn't like a totalitarian uh, dictatorship with nothing but violence and suppression, but it was perceived as fundamentally lacking freedom. And Russians were not unaware of the larger world. In the larger world, the sense of freedom was something that human beings had a right to. It was felt to be a type of fundamental national right. So, so I would say, what, what were they revolting against? The lack of freedom. The problem was they all understood it in very different ways. I'll pick up on a couple of points there that, um, I mean, there is a moment of euphoria when the uh, old regime falls, 
and it seems like a holiday and everyone's out on the streets. But, um, you know, that when we, we think about revolutions, not here we're getting beyond 1917, but as kind of um, if, if the fall of the old regime is, is central to the revolution, we're getting back to regime change here, then there's beginnings, middles, and ends to revolutions. Revolutions are a long-term process. And you see, you know, kind of a, uh, uh, that's why the, it happens not in the same, but in similar uh, ways in many different countries. But you have sort of coalitions that come together to bring down the old order. And you have social coalitions between you know, white co- what we'd call white collar and blue collar, you have alliances. And then once the old regime falls, and this is the moment of February, right, the moment of freedom, when all the restrictions of the old regime, the old estate system, the uh, religious discrimination, the bans on um, popular assembly, and the, you know, combined with the end of the Old, the, the czar's police and its all its coercive apparatus. This leads to perhaps the freest moment in Russian history, right? Um, for for but it's in the middle of a horrendous war when the state's survival is on the line, and all these different political groups that have sort of you know there have been fractures in the alliance, especially with the Bolsheviks and the far left were not that inclined to make um, permanent. Uh, alliances early, much earlier, but but you know you see an immediate uh, exacerbation of the struggle for power. So that's sort of the middle stages, right, the, of revolution, the, the struggles for power and over the shape of the new regime, um, and uh, then you know you get um, once uh, you get the, the the whole attempt to kind of consolidate a new regime and later stages is a revolution. There have been many revolutions that have had a second phase of radicalism, like Stalinism or Maoism or Cardenas in Mexico. So, you know, there, there are these long-term processes that are broadly similar in many, many modern revolutions. But I get back to the question of why did uh, was the outcome socialist and why was it, um, you know, uh, authoritarian in Russia? I think we have to ask those questions. And to pick up something on Marx said, I think in addition to the freedom, he mentioned democracy. And of course, Lenin had his own definition of democracy as meaning the sort of input from below rather than formal parliamentary, liberal, procedural democracy, which he associated with the domination of the bourgeoisie. And I think even in 1917, even between the rank and file of the Bolshevik party and the top Bolshevik leadership, you know, people who, the Red Guards who came out onto the streets in October fighting for the Bolsheviks may have thought, and I think there's a good case to be made, that they were fighting for multi-party Soviet democracy rather than any kind of seizure of power by the Bolsheviks. And I think even in the Bolshevik top leadership, there were voices and here's Lenin's role, sort of insisting on Bolsheviks going it alone more than the other top Bolsheviks who thought it premature. But there were disagreements on whether, you know, I think we can debate, can, was multi-party Soviet democracy an option, or when did it not become an option, you know, at the top levels of the Bolshevik party? So even in terms of what people thought they were fighting for, and in terms of democracy, there were different definitions but I do think that um, here, one thing, last point I'll make um, is that we know that political power and states, if they are concerted about trying to uh, inculcate certain views, can have a real profound effect on people's identities in a, and beliefs in a really short amount of time. We're seeing this today in the United States. We're seeing it. We see it um, in terms of many uh, historical transformations in the interwar period. So, I mean, once uh, you have this kind of um, class antagonism being propagated by many of the political parties, including the Bolsheviks in 1917, 
and you have them saying, we represent the revolution after they've taken power and everyone else is either counter-revolutionaries or petty bourgeois, then that, that can also really affect popular attitudes. Yeah, and, and I want to underscore both the question of class and democracy that you were mentioning, because this is really critical uh, and intense class feeling and distrust is, one might say, the the um, the ether and the, the, the atmosphere in which a lot of what does and doesn't happen in 1917 and ultimately shapes the outcomes uh, and to which the Bolsheviks spoke very powerfully, uh, class is really key. So I want to back up a second to the question of democracy, because I think we, we're both emphasizing the importance of that concept. And you mentioned Lenin's particular view of democracy, which is very different from the liberal democratic one. But it's also, of course, as you know, the, the um, meaning of democracy in 1917 in Russian, of the Russian word demokratia, uh, which is clearly a borrowed uh, word, uh, meant something also increasingly different uh, from that of liberal democracy, of, of institutions and voting and balances of power and majority rule, uh, because, uh, as you know, Michael, the, the sense of democracy meant the people. It meant the popular forces allied with the left-wing intelligentsia who supported them. So many people in the course of especially by the middle of 1917, are talking about the democracy. We often add the the to make it clearer. The democracy needs to come to power. Don't trust the bourgeoisie, that's everybody else, uh, but give power to the democracy. Uh, the Soviets were seen as the institution representing workers, peasants, and soldiers, which is to say the democracy. So the, the fact that democracy as a concept uh, becomes so infused with feelings of class, as you say, identity, uh, and a sense of who should hold power, which is to say the democracy. So this is a weird way. Democracy is not the power of all the people represented in elections. Democracy is the power of the, the people, of the lower classes, of workers, peasants, soldiers, and those who, who support them. And so it's a an interesting class-infused change in the term. And as you say, many revolutions look similar, but the outcomes are quite different. And a key part of the outcome is this early 20th century revolution, unlike many that preceded it, uh, but also because of the growing, the powerful role of a left-wing socialist party allied with urban, the urban working class, class becomes really critical and shapes people's, uh, the outcome. It also is a way to get at what people were experiencing and the experiencing. And you mentioned the euphoria after February. One of the problems is, as you say, the war doesn't end. The economy actually continues to disintegrate. The land is not distributed to the peasants, though some of them are beginning to take it. Uh, each one of the core classes of the country are finding themselves that freedom hasn't made their life better. And so what is the answer? The answer is, therefore, not freedom anymore, but power to the democracy, or as many would say, although not that many use the term yet, uh, socialism. They were much more likely to talk about power to the people, land to the peasants, and, and the like. So a democratic revolution that's about a class notion of democracy, that's the sort of wet to, part of the disappointment of after that euphoria uh, is connected to people's class feelings because of their real social positions. It's not just prejudice. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, you want to say something, Mark? Because I, I have a response to that. I'll keep, keep oh, it brief. Please, yeah. please, please do. Okay, so... Um, the, uh, the, even Lenin, you know, really changed. So, I, I mean, people often look at the, the, the way leader, these leaders shaped history, and certainly Lenin played this huge role in the Bolshevik Party. But, you know, if you look at Lenin in 1917, uh, talking about how every crook can govern and Lenin of state and revolution, he, you know, he's different than the Lenin of the Civil War. Um, and uh, you mentioned the, the change in attitudes. I mean, think about the just the sheer devastation of total war, revolution, state breakdown, and civil war, and all the disease and hunger and epidemics, then you get a kind of craving for the reestablishment of authority. Uh, another thing that the, 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 the class antagonistic type of revolution um, you know, leads to is the creation of a new elite and people who come from the previous downtrodden classes rising up quickly. So, 
you have a discrimination against uh, people with noble background, the clergy, and the so-called former people who are not allowed to vote under in the new regime. And, you know, so the, the, I think that the, the initial kind of euphoria and striving for freedom can sometimes change into this notion of um, payback uh, against enemies. And enemies <laughs> of the people is a phrase associated with Stalin, but it really has a popular valence in 1917 as well. Right. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, uh, kind of revenge against, uh, the former oppressors. And so these, these sentiments all have an evolution among both the leaders and the, uh, uh the sort of the masses, if you will. But the, the last point I uh, want to pick up on Mark was saying, um, about the war. I mean, the, the international situation really, has an effect. When you look at the outcomes of different revolutions, you look at, say, the Velvet Revolution of 1989, you have a fairly stable international order. It's the polar opposite of the kind of um, existential crisis and mass destruction of, of, of total war after 1914. And then, you know, I was alluding to this in the past, but it makes a, a real difference if you're in the English Revolution in the nineteenth and the seventeenth century, trying to kind of uh, the, the agenda is to restore old freedoms that have been lost. You know, it gets a fairly concert can be a, can can lead to a much more kind of stable outcome than if your goal is to complete to create a completely new world and reorder the nature of mankind itself. So, you know, there, there have been waves of revolutions in the in the twentieth century. And the first wave was actually liberal constitutionalist. Russia in 1905 was part of this. Persia, the Ottoman Empire, uh, the Mexican Revolution, China. These were all kind of operating on a kind of paradigm or, or script that was liberal constitutionalist. And then the, the October Revolution is the kind of master revolution for uh, the communist in the wave of communist revolutions in the early middle part of the 20th century. Yeah, and if I could just add very briefly, one of the unstable aspects of the international situation toward the end of World War I is it was quite plausible for Lenin and others to say, you know, this is just the opening um, salvo, uh, our seizing power in Russia, of what will become a global revolution, certainly across Europe, if not across the imperial world. And, and indeed, there are some signs of revolutionary peoples, Germany, the is the one they were most hoping for. And there was indeed an attempted German uh, revolution in 1918. So I think this instability was also, if we take the chance, if we make this enormous gamble to try to come to power as a so-called proletarian party in a peasant country in the midst of economic crisis, uh, it's not just about us. It's about <laughs> starting a wave across the world. And one might say one of the great tragedies of the outcomes of the Russian Revolution had to do the Bolshevik Revolution had to do with the fact that that never happened, and they became deeply isolated, and therefore had to address how do you, what do you do? Do you walk away from power, or do you do the best you can in uh, terrible conditions for building? Uh, socialism. So that instability in the rest of the world was also part of what what shaped these events. You're, you're quite right. I I want to conclude with uh, a question because <clears throat> both of you have uh, elaborated on the many ways in which you had these multiple revolutions, and yet we've so conveniently boiled it down to these this one yeah. or two revolutions. To what degree do you think that perhaps our, our misconceptions or misunderstanding of the number of revolutions that happened in 1917 was defined by that outcome. Because I'm impressed by how both of you keep referring to this outcome. It's like this looming shadow ahead of, 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 you know, of, of, of the Soviet Union, Stalinist Russia, and so forth. Did that by any chance cause people to pare down on the change and focus on just these narrow political uh, international dynamics? Yeah. I think, <laughs> I think that's pretty clear. I mean, it's it, go ahead, Mike. No, you go ahead. It's fine. Yeah, I mean, I think we we agree. I mean, and it's uh, and because he and I have both been at all of these events, you know, the obsession with what has happened being the way we interpret what could have happened uh, is ubiquitous, um, especially in Russia today, where I, I was recently at a conference. I'm about to go again. 
you know, the it's a it's a it's a mistake that one likes to think historic professional historians don't make, but that's not the case, which is to read history through its outcomes, uh, to see all the complexity of events as ultimately a lot of different sideshows, but the outcome tells you what really matters, what's really essential. Uh, and if you undo that backward reading from outcomes into periods of time where you don't know the outcome, indeed, the outcome is not inevitable. And I think most historians would say, of course, outcomes are not inevitable. Of course, there's multiple uh, possibilities because there's so many variables in any situation, uh, domestic and international and individual about people who are available and who lives and who dies. Uh, but in practice, we have a t because we want to tell a coherent narrative, we tend to focus on what are the what are the lines, what are the vectors leading to what we know actually happened, and therefore we tend to lose uh, the rich complexity and possibility of history by reading it backwards through the prism of its outcomes. Yeah, I, I think that you know there to get back to this question of stages of revolution. So you have all the periods sort of leading up to the fall of the old regime. You have the power struggles and civil wars and conflicts and euphoria and, you know, um, ferment that are part of the middle stages. But when you have a new regime, you know, there are many stages that that new regime often goes through. And in Russia, in the Soviet Union, you know, the civil war versus that, which was, you know, a kind of. Uh, in certain ways, almost apocalyptic and really radicalizing event for the Bolsheviks, both in terms of you know the centralization of power and the the red terror and the persecution of enemies and so forth, but also in in terms of radicalization of agendas, with people talking about the withering away of money itself, for example, and then the you know relatively moderate phase. I think it's actually, you know, an oversimplification to talk about the 1920s as moderate, because, you know, it's also the period where the new state is building itself up. And it's a crucial period in, in, in that uh, with revolutionary agendas of its own, particularly in terms of the cultural revolution. But it's also um, sets boundaries for a time on further what was called socialist offensive. So many revolutions have this kind of alternation between a kind of civil war and then a kind of relative stabilization. Some revolutions are reversed. You know, the French Revolution goes through many iterations of many regimes. But, you know, you have a kind of institutionalized revolution in Russia where a regime comes to power and it's different sub-periods of the same regime. Then you have a kind of Second Revolution, as I mentioned before, at the end of the 1920s. And the thing about Stalinism is that it was made up of many different sub-periods, some of which were more, much more kind of periods of radical socialist offense of the early 30s, industrialization, collectivization of agriculture, then a kind of brief respite and a kind of period of um, consolidation in the mid-30s, then the Great Terror you know, in World War II, a lot of the harsh policies by just by the extreme crisis the regime found itself in had to be reversed. And, and then you get a period of re-radicalization in the Zhdanov period of the late 40s. So you have a kind of cyclical quality to kind of socialist offensive and then relative consult periods of either, you know, retreat or consolidation. And I think that that makes Stalinism into a kind of um, really difficult to understand hybrid phenomenon. It's, the, the interesting question is when the revolution actually ends. It conventionally said, you know, the consolidation of a new regime. But when is it actually consolidated? I mean, Stalinism went, pre-war Stalinism went through so many upheavals in the 1930s. And, you know, it's different, uh, as I say, um, radically different sub-periods. But I don't really think it's fully consolidated until post-World War II when you have a much more deeply entrenched conservative hierarchical system. But Stalin's very existence led to the possibility of continued upheavals. After Stalin's death, though, you see that really happening. You're talking about reform and the, you know, Khrushchev's thaw and Gorbachev's perestroika 
are really attempts to shake up a deeply entrenched system. So I think when we're talking about already that, shaking up an entrenched system, you really don't have a continuation of the revolution. For the entire Stalin period, I think it's more complex, and it's a kind of hybrid, radical, reactionary system in some ways turns back to elements of czarism, elements of nationalism, Russian nationalism, and in other <coughs> respects continues the kind of radical state-sponsored transformations that are coming out of the um, earlier stages of the revolution. Yeah, and so there, you know, the question of if we read the, the fundamental trends of 1917 in terms of outcomes, as you've just, you know, reminded us, which outcomes are we talking about? Because they're so different. The Civil War, the period of the 1920s, Stalin's revolution, Stalin's stabilization of sorts, uh, the war, uh, the post-war. Each one of those are different outcomes. So do we, you know, the tendency is to say, well, Lenin led to Stalin, but even Stalin is, is multiple. So you can see the danger of reading from outcomes because you have to choose which outcome you want to emphasize. I think we're also ready. And, and I agree. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, I mean, I agree. The, just one more point, probably, and I think we agree, maybe it's only with Putin that the revolution comes to an end. And Putin, we might say, and I think it's 2001 or so, where he said, Russia has had enough revolutions. We are tired of revolutions. And it's the one thing that probably most Russians today share with him, which is the idea that, that revolutions have brought us no good, because we've had, a, one might say, 70 years of different forms of revolution. So maybe the revolution is really only over now under President Putin, at least for a while. I, I feel we could have an entirely separate broadcast just uh, addressing that question. <laughs> uh, well, gentlemen, thank you very much for your time discussing, uh, taking some time from your schedules to discuss the Russian revolutions of 1917. I hope you have a wonderful day. Pleasure. Thank you so much. We didn't argue enough, obviously, but that's all right. <laughs> thank you. It was fun, fun to talk with you, Michael. All right. And thank you, Mark. Oh, thank you. All right.